You're listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. Our prayers that this encourages you in the Lord. Hello, everyone. My name is Hank Atchison. I'm the lead teaching pastor at Covenant Church. I just want to let you know that this recording was not done on Easter Sunday. Uh, we had some technical difficulties on that Sunday, and so this recording was done on April the 10th, the Monday after Easter. And so obviously it's going to have some differences in what was heard in person. Uh, but our hope in this is just to give you um, the content as it does set the stage for the rest of our journey in the book of Acts. And so I'm going to pray for us and we'll get started. Father, thank you for this day. Um, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that's in it. Um, thank you that you are a living Savior. Death was defeated, our sin punished finally and completely in your death and in your resurrection. And we thank you for that. And Lord, I pray that this content is used to edify and encourage the believer um, and also to give spiritual sight, if you will, to those who have yet to believe. But we thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it means for us today and what it means for us forever. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Every single aspect of Christianity hinges on the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Jesus is central to our faith, what we believe. It's central to all of our gatherings, or at least it should be. And it is certainly central to the message of the gospel. You may be wondering, or maybe you've been asked, I know that I have, what is it that's distinct about Christianity? I mean, isn't Christianity just another way to get to God? In a culture like we live in, there are those that believe and even celebrate that there are many ways to get to God. And truth is something that's relative. And if it's true for you, then that's fine for you. But what's true for me is, is fine for me. But what is it that's distinct about Christianity? The answer is the resurrection. Every single other major, major religion and its founder leads you back to a tomb that is occupied. Christianity is the only religion that leads you to a tomb that is empty. And so this message of the resurrection being central to Christianity, it's also what sets Christianity apart from every other religion. And I think one of the best places to reach this conclusion is found in the book of Acts. Now, next week, we're going to begin a journey in the book of Acts as a church. Um, we preach verse by verse through different books of the Bible, like we, we start at the beginning and we preach our way all the way through it. Well, next Sunday, we'll begin in the book of Acts. And as I was preparing for this Easter message, um, while simultaneously preparing for our sermons in Acts, I, I was struck by the first few verses of the book of Acts and how the resurrection is quickly stated by the Apostle Luke. Now, there'll be more context and history and background in the book of Acts in our next message, but today what I want us to see is how the resurrection was central to the first century church or to the first Christians. And so we're going to do sort of an overview of the book of Acts with the resurrection in mind. Now, it is important to have a couple of specific details about this book before we get started. In, in Luke's book, this is the Apostle Luke who wrote the book of Acts. It's his second book, the Acts of the Apostles. Here he begins where he left off in his initial account. 
he introduces what will be the overriding emphasis of this story, the role of the apostles as witnesses to the life, death, and especially the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I'm going to begin in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and then we're going to be flipping our way through the book of Acts in multiple places. So if you're listening to this at home, I'd love for you to get you a cup of coffee, get your Bible out, and uh, join me as we take a journey to see how the resurrection was central to the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now verse 3 is where we really need to zero in to see how right out of the gate Luke is establishing what is central and foundational to this whole book, to this whole Christian message, to this whole Christian reality. He, speaking of Jesus, this is verse 3, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So the foundational truth behind every event in Acts, every single event as we take this journey, we're going to see some really awesome things. But what's foundational behind every single event is the reality of the risen Christ. Their responsibility as the first Christians was not to introduce a new social club. It wasn't to propose just another way to get to God. These first Christians were not scholars. They were not academians dedicated to starting institutions. They were common men and women tasked with a simple challenge. Go and tell the world what you saw and what it means. And here's how they did it. Now, I want to give you three ways, three specific ways. There are more, but three specific ways that they showed the resurrection to be central. But, but as a side note, um, considering that we set aside one day a year to really celebrate the resurrection, and I know we celebrate it yearly, but let's just take what we do culturally and celebrate the resurrection. And, and we, maybe if we were in a conversation with some first century Christians and we were trying to decide how to make the most of the resurrection and, and say we came up with the idea in, in our culture in 2023 to say, hey, look, why don't we just... Why don't we have a, a celebration once a year that Jesus is alive? I believe these first Christians would have said, hey, hey, there's nothing wrong with that, certainly. But we see this as so central and so impactful and powerful that we're going to celebrate it weekly. And that's the reason that we meet on Sundays. The reason that we meet on Sundays is because the early Christians established that the resurrection should be celebrated weekly. And so we meet on the first day of the week, that is Sunday, to gather together as those serving and worshiping a risen Lord. And that weekly celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ was established by these first Christians. Now, back to the message and in how they made the resurrection central to their message. First way is this, the resurrected Christ was always the subject of their preaching. The resurrected Christ was always the subject of their preaching. In the first five chapters of Acts, Luke records the thrust of several sermons which the apostles preached. Now, I want us to look at a couple. We're not going to be able to look at them in detail, but I want us to look at a couple. And the first one is found in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, 
I'm going to begin reading in verse 24, and then I'm going to jump down to verse 29 through verse 36. Verse 24, right out of the gate is, is Peter's preaching, one of the first sermons ever preached as a Christian, as a, as a church. God raised him up, speaking of Jesus, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, jumping down to verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Verse 32, listen, this Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. The overwhelming message of this first sermon is that Jesus Christ has been raised up. He's not like David, whom they had high regard for as a prophet and king, being Jews. Because according to Peter, and this is true, David's still in his tomb. But this Jesus, God has raised, and to this they say they are all witnesses. Over in chapter 3, a lame man has just been healed by Peter and John. And the religious leaders and some of the political leaders of the day are starting to take notice of the power and the activity and the influence of these new Christians. I'm going to begin in verse 11 as, as Peter responds to some of these leaders in Solomon's portico. Chapter 3, verse 11. While he, this is the, the man that was just healed, clung to Peter and John and all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Here comes his sermon. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had, de when he had decided to release him. Verse 14, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life. Here it is, listen. Whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Jumping down to verse 26 of chapter 3, he wraps up this sermon in a similar way that he wrapped up his sermon in chapter 2. God, having raised up his servant, that's Jesus, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. The central message in these first two sermons is that Jesus Christ is alive. In chapter 4, beginning in verses 1 and 2, it says, And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Now this is interesting. Verse 2 says they're greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So this message of a risen Christ is not gaining popularity. And I think it's important to ask why. Well, the reason that this message of a risen Christ is not gaining popularity, particularly with the religious leaders and those with political power, is because they know the consequence of a resurrection means that everyone, everywhere, has to acknowledge, but not only acknowledge, submit to 
this man who is risen from the dead. So they're annoyed. It, it's not gaining them more and more popularity, if you will. It's, it's gaining them more hostility. Verse 3 says, And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men who came about, 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power, by what name do you do this? Now listen, this is a third sermon in a response to these religious leaders. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, here it is, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. If you read back at the first part of chapter 3, you'll know that in the moment, in the instant that this man's legs began to work, and they never had worked prior, Peter exclaims to him, rise up. And it's in that command that God exercises his power and authority over the man's dead muscles and ligaments and bones and legs and causes him to rise up. And Peter says the reason that he's able to say to this man, rise up, is because the exact same thing happened to Jesus Christ. He rose up from the grave. The death of Jesus, as much as it accomplished, the burial of Jesus, as much as it speaks to us about how far our sin has been taken from us, if it was just a death and it was just a burial, we simply have no message. And the first Christians knew that. They knew that the resurrection was what sealed the deal. It's what validated every single thing Jesus said and every single thing that Jesus did. Now, in chapter 5, they justify their continued preaching with the defense. If you pick up with me in verse 29... That says that Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Again, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was central to their preaching was central to their message, and it was the fact that Jesus Christ is alive that gave them the boldness and the courage to continue on in the midst of persecution, in the midst of death, in the midst of imprisonment. They pressed on in preaching because they knew that Christ was living. Now, the second thing that shows us that the resurrection was central to this first church is they gave testimony of the resurrection as eyewitnesses. Now, this may can go without saying, but Christianity is about a public proclamation. Christianity is a public message about a public person who took part in a public event. And that is, Jesus of Nazareth, who was dead, 
now lives. The resurrection was a public event. It was not a private revelation given to a few people. Now, this may make you think less of me, but I am somewhat fascinated with cults. And in this way, as I read about them and listen to podcasts about them, I often wonder and go, what is it? What is it that caused this to get so much traction? And in almost all of them, you can trace them back to a single individual receiving a special private revelation from God. And those that are leaders and have power in these cults, it's those that have this sort of secret society, this private message that they're privy to and that nobody else can hear. And they use that as leverage to gain weak-minded weak-hearted, desperate followers. Christianity is fundamentally not that. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was public. Therefore, the resurrection of Jesus is factual, it's verifiable, and it's legitimately a historical event. The book of Acts is one of the greatest history books ever written. And it was written in the same way that every other history book you've ever read was written, except for Acts is the inspired word of God. But what I mean is in this way is that it was written down by eyewitness accounts, multiple eyewitness accounts. And that holds up in any court in every court that has ever been of human opinion. And so these are eyewitness accounts. And if you're a parent out there and you have multiple children, then you have had to serve as a judge. And you have had to hear from the prosecution at times from one child. And you've had to hear from the defense of another child. And often, if you have more than two children, then maybe you have an attorney that comes in and serves as a defense attorney for one child or a prosecuting attorney for another child. But you know this to be true. When somebody's seen something, their tone is different, their countenance is different, their passion is different. We can't see the tone, we can't see the passion of these apostles and these first Christians. But you best believe that it was there. And if you went, well, why is it there? Primarily because their eyes had seen, their ears had heard the voice of the risen Lord. They had sat and eaten and drinking and, and drank with the risen Savior. In chapter 2 of Acts, verse 32, Peter makes this point when he says, This Jesus God raised up of that we are all witnesses. In chapter 3, verse 15, he says, and you killed the author of life whom God raised up from the dead. To this, to this, we are witnesses. Chapter 5, verse 32, it says, and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. In chapter 10, verses 39 through 42, it says, and we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. 
But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to those who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. These apostles were unafraid to tell of what they saw. In fact, they were compelled to communicate this message that they knew to be true because of what their eyes had seen. However, the apostles were not the sole witnesses to the resurrection. They repeatedly looked to the crowds in Jerusalem to affirm the truths of their messages. Back in Acts chapter 2, verse 22 through 24. Says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, listen, this is important, a man attested to you by God. So God Himself has attested to you this Jesus of Nazareth. And here's how He's done it, verse 22, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your, this is key, midst, as you yourselves know. So they're appealing to the crowds. And saying, look, you've seen these things. You've heard these things just like we have. They called upon the general reputation of Jesus as witnesses to their validity. In chapter 10, beginning in verse 36, he says, As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. Here it is. You yourselves know what happened through all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism and John proclaimed. He says, you yourselves, as he's speaking to this crowd, you know, you've seen, God has attested to you. And in probably one of my favorite places, Paul himself challenged even kings. In chapter 26, he challenges King Agrippa with the public record of these events after he's just shared the gospel of Jesus with King Agrippa, he says this in chapter 26, verse 26. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for he has not, for this has not been done in a corner. Christianity is about a public proclamation. It's a public message about a public person who took part in a public event. And so the affirmation of a risen Savior was not limited to a few Galilean loyalists. God provided for much more testimony than theirs. Testimony that was powerful, testimony that was authoritative, and testimony that was indisputable. This witness, in fact, is the thrust of the Great Commission found in Acts chapter 1. Verse 8, where Jesus himself says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The third way that we see the resurrection is central to the message of Acts and for these first Christians is that Jesus is presented as alive and active throughout Luke's narrative. Now, to me, this is one of the more remarkable evidences of the risen Savior in the book of Acts, and it's because of the frequent activity of Jesus himself. 
we're going to see multiple times in our journey through Acts that they speak of Jesus as if he's right there. They speak of Jesus as if he is, and he is the one who is literally doing the healing, that he's the one that's literally doing the saving. He's the one that is literally in their midst. And had he not risen from the tomb, Jesus could not be active in the life of his church. Jesus would not be reigning in heaven with all authority as he is. And he certainly cannot be active in the spread of the gospel. Yet Luke repeatedly notes that Jesus himself is exercising his power on behalf of his messengers. In chapter 2, verse 33, Peter affirms that Jesus was behind the outpouring of the Spirit. In chapter 7, verse 56, in one of the more magnificent chapters of the book of Acts, we see Stephen as he is looking death square in the eye. And why is that? Why is Stephen about to be stoned to death? Because of his preaching and belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And at the end of Stephen's passionate, eloquent exposition of the Old Testament as a defense for the person and work of Jesus Christ to those who want to kill him, in verse 56, he looks to heaven and he sees at the right hand of God, Jesus, the Son of Man, standing. In chapter 9, verse 3, Saul, who is at this point in his life actively killing those who preach the resurrection, is on the road to Damascus and he has an encounter with Jesus himself. In chapter 9, verse 34, Peter heals yet another man through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he tells that man that Jesus, the Christ, it's Jesus, the Christ that heals you. Jesus is not a silent observer of the work of his messengers. Rather, he is engaged with them, manifesting his power, exercising his rule, and supporting his disciples as they offer his salvation to all. Jesus Christ throughout the book of Acts and today is very much alive and his activity stands as testimony to his resurrection. Without a doubt, the resurrection was at the heart of the gospel message for the first Christians. The death, the burial, and the resurrection still stand today at the foundation of our faith and should be the heart of our message. What does this mean for you? Well, if you're a believer today, meaning you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone to save you, it means that you have hope in this life. But not only in this life, it means that you have hope in death. This past week, I had to do the funeral of a friend of mine who was senselessly murdered and as you can imagine, his family is grieving deeply of just this type tragedy and for him to die in the way that he died. But I was able to, with tears in my eyes, but with courage and boldness, look at them and say, evil did not have the final say in his life as some may see it. And evil didn't have the final say in his life because evil didn't have the final say in Jesus' life. Jesus coming out of the tomb guarantees that death has no hold on and no victory over those 
who have trusted him. In fact, his word goes on to say in John 11 that for everyone who believes in him, even though they die, they live. And it's as if we never die. Death for the believer because of the resurrection is an entrance into the presence of the Lord, which means peace and comfort and tranquility eternal. So believer, the resurrection stands as our hope. And it guarantees us that our worst enemy, and that is death, has been totally defeated. Well, um, there's a chance that some of you listening to this maybe have not trusted Christ. What does the resurrection mean for the unbeliever? Well, in John chapter, not John, in Acts chapter 17, verse 31, we're told, the time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. That's Christ. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So I believe the Bible gives a very compelling argument to the authenticity and the validity of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that includes his resurrection. And if Jesus Christ has in fact raised from the dead, then every single man and woman that's ever walked on this planet has a responsibility to respond to that. Either in willful rejection, not because there hasn't been evidence or proof given, or because you haven't been told, which would mean a willful rejection or we respond in faith and trust that this man who defeated death is worthy of our praise and our following and our worship. You see, not believing in the resurrection doesn't mean that we avoid the resurrected Lord. And if you haven't trusted Jesus Christ, scripture is clear that Jesus lives and therefore you will stand before him and he will stand before you as your judge. And if you come to him on your own merit, you will not stand. But if you trust him today and come to him on the merit that he's given through his life and his death and his resurrection in your place, then you will be welcomed into his presence forever and ever. Do you remember Thomas? Thomas was a disciple of Jesus Christ. And many of you I've heard of Thomas, and when you think of Thomas, you probably immediately think of Thomas's biggest struggle that the world has known since he had it. Can you imagine? But he's known as Doubting Thomas. Thomas was a faithful follower of Jesus. Thomas was as committed as everyone else was committed to the work and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Thomas began to struggle on the day that Jesus was crucified. What Thomas saw that day, he just wasn't able to overcome, at least not easily. He saw Jesus Christ mutilated. He saw his body torn apart. In fact, Thomas's references to the nails that went into Jesus's hands and went into Jesus's feet is the only place in any of the Gospels that the word nails is used, which lets us know that that imagery is seared into his mind. And so on that first Easter morning, 
Thomas wasn't there. As Mary Magdalene and some of the other ladies who were close followers of Jesus came upon an empty tomb, Peter and John later followed. They had a gathering essentially to celebrate the fact and to discuss the fact of Jesus's resurrection, that Jesus was alive. This was a, a, a closed door, in fact, a locked door meeting that Thomas was not present at. But at this meeting, Jesus himself appeared, even though the door was locked. And they sat and they ate and they drank with the risen Lord. Thomas more than likely has just gone about his life. He, he's just trying to move on to the best that he can. However, later in John's account, we, we see that there is yet another gathering of the disciples. And at this gathering, Thomas is present. And the conversation continues as they maybe even try to convince Thomas of the fact that Jesus is alive. And they tell Thomas of all that they've seen and all that they've heard. And Thomas's reply is, unless I can put my hands or my fingers in his hands and I can touch his side, he boldly says, I will never believe. And then in an incredible act of kindness and grace, Jesus himself appears to this doubtful, angry, confused follower of his, Thomas. And he sticks his hands out and he says, go ahead, Thomas, touch my hands. And Thomas touches the hands that have the nail scars. Thomas touches the side of Jesus that was thrust with a spear. And Thomas's response is a beautiful moment of repentance because Thomas responds in what is the, the climax of the book of John when Thomas says, my Lord and my God. But you might still say, but he's not here today. I, I can't see Jesus today. Well, Jesus immediately after revealing himself to Thomas responds to that when he says this, blessed are those who have not seen yet believe. The eyes of faith are just as commendable and necessary as physical eyes that see and touch. And we live in an age where God has made himself known. God has presented himself as the risen Lord, and he's done so through the power of his spirit and through his written word. I pray that you trust him today. We'd like to thank you for listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. If you have any questions or would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at www.covchurchtusk.com or you can email info at covchurchtusk.com. God bless.